Lord, we thank you for the testimony of your word. Lord, as we were reading, David cries out to you, asking you to answer him speedily because his spirit fails. And Lord, there are times in our life when our spirit fails. There are times in our life, Lord, where we feel distressed and discouraged and despondent. Well, the times in our life where we let our worries overtake us, where we are so overcome with grief for various reasons. that Lord, we say in our hearts that you are hiding your face from us. That your love and kindness has left us. Well, Lord, we know that that is not true. Scripture testifies, Lord, that you are you are faithful. You are dear and near to your people. So, Father, as I pray this morning. We have this in mind, Lord, that you are God. And that you give us light. Lord, we give thanks to you this morning for you are good. For your loving kindness is everlasting David says here in this song cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning for in you do I trust Lord cause us to know the way in which we should walk for we lift up our souls to you Lord deliver us from our enemies the enemies in our culture the enemies in our families the enemies in our co-workers those who hate Christ and hate the church and hate our walk with you Lord, you are our deliverer, you are our shield, you are our refuge, you are the horn of our salvation. We praise you, Lord, and offer everlasting thankfulness because you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to offer his life for our sake on the cross. And Lord, this is the greatest thing we ought to be thankful for this morning. Lord, Christ is our strength. He is our song and he has become our salvation. The stone, as scripture says, that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone and the savior of the world. Lord, no one in this world will ever find salvation in any other. And Lord, no one can come to you except through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we acknowledge that our salvation is all your work. Lord, we're utterly helpless to save ourselves or contribute any merit, any work of our own doing towards gaining your favor. But Lord, you took the initiative. You made the first move. You reconciled us to yourself through Christ. You made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Lord, it is because of you that we can even stand before you. It is because of you that I can even pray to you right now, that I can even approach the throne of grace. Lord, you were the offended party. You acted first on our behalf while we were still enemies of you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. The just for the unjust. 
So, Lord, cause us to know the way in which we should walk. Lord, deliver us from our enemies. Teach us to do your will. For, Lord, you are our God. Your spirit is good. Lead us into the land of uprightness. And, Lord, we ask this because we are willingly or willfully rebellious. Our appetites can be evil. Our conduct can be contrary to your law. Our hearts can be occupied with unworthy thoughts and worldly deeds. Our motives can at times be self-serving. Our attitudes can be arrogant. Our minds can be hostile to you, Lord. We can even refuse at times to submit to your authority. And Lord, we were hopelessly in bondage to sin and unable to serve you as we ought to. But Lord, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us from that bondage. He purchased us from the slave house of sin by offering himself as a substitute. Lord, Christ took our place and carried our guilt to the cross and nailed it there. He bore for our sakes the just punishment of sin. And Lord, now that we look to you, we are slaves of righteousness. And it is our delightful duty to embrace Christ wholeheartedly as our rightful master. He is not only our Lord to rule over us, but he is also our Messiah, our deliverer, our teacher, our shepherd, our caretaker, our great high priest, our intercessor, our mediator. He made everlasting atonement for all who believe in him. And Lord, he has put away our sins forever by the sacrifice of himself. He is the one who heals our diseases and our sicknesses. He heals our sin-sick soul. And Lord, he also heals our bodies. And Lord, as we think about that this morning, we ask you to heal our brother Harvey and his body this morning, Lord. Be with him. Lord, visit him. Encourage him by your spirit. Touch his body, Lord, from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet, Father. Touch him where he hurts. Ease his comfort. I mean, ease his discomfort, Lord, and, and, and provide him with gospel relief until he's able to go see a medical professional, Lord. Just be with him this morning. And Lord, also remember Grace, who's watching us also, Lord, that you be with her and, and heal her as she is sick this morning. Also, Lord, visit her. Encourage her in the spirit also, Lord. Visit her in her moment of sickness and weakness, Lord. And strengthen her where she's weak. Lord, we thank you for Christ as our Savior. We trust in his work as fully sufficient. Lord, we give up any effort to gain our own righteousness. And Lord, we give up trying to fit ourselves for heaven with our own efforts. We lay ourselves, Lord, totally at the mercy of the cross and of Christ. 
Lord, we come to the one who by faith has already done everything for us. And Lord, we know that the only hope we have of abiding in Christ lies in the grace that made us alive to him in the first place. And Lord, I lift up the brethren this morning, friends of mine in pastoral ministry. Lord, that you may show your mercy and faithfulness to them and their churches by strengthening their faith, by filling their membership with unity and love, by enabling their congregations to fight the battles of the Lord with prayer, endurance, bold witness, and gospel obedience. Lord, we pray that for um, Grace Fellowship, Christian Fellowship, Redeemer, ABC, Southside Baptist in Talladega with my uh, friend, Brother Josh. Also, Lord, we pray for Brother Cody Hill out of Iron City and Justin Holland up at Mountain View and other brethren, Lord, who are laboring in the Lord, that that prayer may come true. Strengthen all of our churches, Lord, as we deal with a culture that, that hates you, that hates your word, that hates your truth, that hates your people. And Lord, we cling with humble faith to the cross. Ask, Lord, that you keep us near the cross, as always. In the name of the one crucified on that cross, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let us turn to Galatians. We're in our last sermon in this book that we've been in the last few months just remembering one of the mega themes of the book as we started uh, last year is that there's only one gospel there's only one gospel and Paul caps off this letter to this church by focusing on what counts the most and who counts the most. And that is boasting in the cross. What counts the most? So we're going to read our text and pray and ask for the Lord's help. This is Galatians 5, beginning, I'm, I'm sorry, 6, beginning at verse 11. It says, See, with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. 
From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. When we're thinking about what things count the most in this life, one of the issues that we have as, as, as fallen man is that we can make the things of this world ultimate things. We can make things that are important ultimate things. And when we do that, the things that really matter the most get overshadowed. Some of us now are probably worried about some things in our life that are troubling us. We have various trials that we're going through. We have things that keep us up at night. It can be from children to marriage to work to health. I mean, there are myriad things that vie for our attention and our affections. What's going on in our world, what we see on social media, we are plagued by things that have importance to us. And the problem is not that these things are not important because they're important to us. The problem comes when we make those things ultimate things. And that's actually what idolatry is. When you, when you turn things into gods, you make them ultimate things. You make them supreme over every else and when we're thinking about things that count the most Paul lays it out here as he ends this letter he talks about boasting only in the cross of Christ and identifying with the cross as what counts the most in the Christian life and in this context in the life of the Galatians. So look at here. Uh, verse 11 is almost like an introductory here. He says. See what large letters I am writing. To you. With my own hand. This letter. Was written to deliver. The believers in Galatia. As I said earlier from the dangerous zealots, the Judaizers, who were telling these Gentile Christians that they had to be circumcised and also observe the law in order to be justified. And Paul said in, in Galatians 1 and 7 that um, any other gospel is no gospel at all. They were preaching a different gospel that wasn't the gospel. But it was a deadly perversion of the gospel. We talked about that at the beginning of this series. So now in this final section, Paul makes one more appeal to the Galatians. He's concerned that those believers wake up from the danger that they're in. And that they should have nothing to do with the falsehood of having to get circumcised. He wanted them to focus on the all important matter of this letter and what it was all about. And he does this in his own handwriting. 
So when he says, see what large letters I, I use as I write to you with my own hand, he's likely saying this because he had been dictating the letter because uh, in ancient times, a, a lot of times writers dictated their letters to people to write down. And Paul did that with some of his writings. He, he dictated them, especially when he was in prison. He would dictate the letters to someone who wrote his letters out. You know, he would speak and they would write down. So perhaps Paul had someone that's doing the writing and before he closed, he took the pen of his own hand to write these concluding words to this church. Or and he did it in long letters and large letters rather than that could have been perhaps because of a difficulty with his eyesight. But we don't know. Scripture is silent on that, but it could be because of that. But I tend to believe that he wrote in large letters as a sake of emphasis. Like, look, this is important. You know how people when they texting someone and they're really upset and they they texted in what all caps. I know a lot of young people do that. I don't think us old people do. Maybe we do. But I know a lot of younger people when they're, they're like, you know, they put it in all caps. I guess that's kind of emphasizing that this is important or I'm mad or I don't like what you said or something like that. So they send those texts in all caps. And, and y'all do all caps sometimes. You know. So when he's saying put it in large letters, perhaps he is emphasizing that this is very important that I'm about to tell you. So we're going to look at two principles here. I had them up on the screen. Two main principles encapsulate these last words that he has. Number one, the Judaizers, remember again, the Judaizers were Jewish converts to Christianity who were still observing uh, the circumcision and still trying to observe the law in order to be justified before God. They were wrong for doing that. And they were trying to get the Galatians who were Gentiles, they were non-Jews to do the same thing, those who the Judaizers are. So principle number one, the Judaizers boasted in themselves rather than in the cross of Christ. We see this again in verse 12 and 13. It says as follows again. First, he's, uh, these Judaizers are concerned with their worldly and religious reputation. They are man pleasers. He says here in verse 12, those who desire to make a good showing, excuse me, in the flesh. So they're trying to please man. They're trying to show out. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh. These Judaizers are confirmed to the uh, accepted legalism of the culture. They're compromisers because Paul continues. They try to compel you or force you to be circumcised. And they do this so that they can be concealed from persecution for the cross of Christ. So they show themselves to be cowards. He says simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So Paul points out three wrong things in what they're doing. They're trying to shun the persecution of, of associated with the cross by demanding that others be 
circumcised. They boasted in themselves rather than in the cross of Christ. So in this, they were confused about their own obedience to the law. They were proven to be hypocrites because he goes on to say, for those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves. They're hypocrites. And they're also, also selfishly ambitious because he says, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So they're not really concerned about the state of those Galatians. They're doing it so that they can boast. So Paul was showing that these Judaizers were man pleasers. They were compromisers. They were cowards. They were hypocrites and they were self-serving. All of that is antithetical to the cross. So the Judaizers weren't concerned with anyone's best interest except their own. That's what he's saying. So they devised a clever plan to uh, avoid persecution or to save uh, face. They came up with this perfect plan to make a good showing in the flesh. But what it entailed was the Galatians again getting circumcised so that they would become lookalike Jews, become counterfeits. And Paul said, no, no. And the Judaizers did this because they want to avoid the harassment from non-believing Jews. So they had the wrong motives for doing this. And it reminds me of some who profess Christ today. They didn't treat the cross of Christ as a narrow road to trod. But they treat the cross as a get out of jail free card or get out of hell free card. They want nothing to do with what the cross truly means. The cross means death to self. The cross means you can't be a man pleaser you can't be a compromiser you can't be a coward you can't be a hypocrite and you can't have selfish ambition the cross does away with all that the cross means what did Jesus say if any man comes after me he must first deny himself take up his cross the cross represents suffering the cross represents rejection. The cross represents suffering, the pain, the torture of living a godly life, living a life that is pleasing to God. That's, that's what the cross represents. It also represents glory. But glory that is found only in Christ and not in yourself. And this is what happens when the cross is no longer a reality to embrace, but a symbol to display. Particularly in Western civilization. You know, Christianity, we Christians, we enjoy uh, is, is, is decreasing, but we enjoy legal protection and a degree of social acceptance. Well, at least we used to. We live where it's easy to con content ourselves with displaying the cross. 
how many people do you see wearing crosses whether it's a pendant on a necklace or earrings or shirts or whatever the case may be a sticker on their car the cross in the west in particular has been cheapened into an ornament a decoration a jewelry accessory I see people wearing crosses I'm like they don't even go to church they're not even Christians me and Fran was looking at uh, somebody that we know this morning on, on, on Facebook who had a 50th birthday party and uh, this past weekend and, he, and, and she had pointed that out like he got a he's got a cross on and he's up here getting drunk and and uh, got a blunt in his mouth but he had, but he's wearing a cross around his neck and he's not he's not a believer that's what the cross has been cheapened to. Not really thinking about what the cro cross stands for. And that's what Paul is saying to these Judaizers. They're, they're trying to escape what the cross truly meant. But we don't want the reality of the cross to be imposed on in our lives. The cross means self-denial. We can't be selfish and self-centered and embrace the cross at the same time. We also can't be cowardly and compromisers and do the same thing. You have believers or so-called professed Christians who are compromising on some of the biggest issues of our day. They're compromising. They're folding. They're giving in. They're acquiescing. Acquiescence means to give in, to give way to the lies that the culture say, the, 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 the falsehoods that the culture say is true, and they're giving in to it, and yet they're still wearing a cross. Or churches, apostate churches, apostate denominations that have crosses in their church or on their church sign or in their symbol, but yet they have denied the very thing that the cross stands for. So Paul is saying these Judaizers are doing the same thing. They're forcing people to be circumcised that they may not be persecuted for the cross. And we have to understand this about the cross in context. The cross, well, this is going to get to our second principle here. Our second principle is that there are two things that really matter. The cross of Christ and new creation. Look at verse 14. It says. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying here that the cross is the only source for boasting. And it has served as the instrument of death. To the world. For some in this context, in this time, the cross was an object of loathing and disgust. But Paul saw glory in it. Not necessarily in the cross itself, the, the piece of wood, but the death that took place on it. And the amazing act of redemption that took place. That's what Paul meant 
by glory in the cross. Not, not the piece of wood, but what happened on that wood. What happened on that cross. The person whose death took place on that cross. That is what Paul gloried in. He gloried in the sacrificial work of Christ. The object of Paul's boasting or glorying was the crucified Jesus who loved him and gave himself for him. He said this back in Galatians 2 and 20. That is why we boast in the cross because we boast in what Christ did on the cross. Never forget. We say it all the time because we have to remember. Christ died in our place. We deserve to be on the cross, not him. We deserved death because of the wages of our sin. But Christ took our place on the cross. That's why we glory in it. The cross of Jesus is what Paul trusted in, what he rejoiced in, and what he lived for. That's what David Campbell said. It's what he trusted in. So we have to understand this about the cross. During this time period in ancient Rome, the cross was an instrument of death. It was a form of capital punishment. Criminals were crucified on crosses. Crosses hung all throughout ancient Rome with people whose bodies were hanging on there sometimes, you know, decomposed bodies. Sometimes family members would come and, and take their family members off those crosses and give them a proper burial. But that cross was a symbol of shame. It was a public execution. It was done in public. Think about the account of Jesus' crucifixion where people were screaming out, what? Crucify him. Crucify him. There were throngs of people, a mob gathered at Christ's crucifixion. It was an object of shame. It was supposed to, to show a message to other criminals that this is what will happen to you. That cross represented shame, torture. And those people that were put on the cross, they were left there, hanged on that cross until they died. Some survived for days on that cross I want to get too uh, gruesome with it but there were times where you know you're hanging on the cross and birds will come pick at your body and animals you know wild animals and all those things it was, it was very barbaric there was nothing glorious about it and so Paul is saying these Judaizers they were ashamed of that they were ashamed of what happened on the cross. And they were also ashamed of the work of Christ on the cross because his work put away the fact that they had to be circumcised in order to be made right with God. And so that's why he said he boasted in the cross, what happened on the cross, what took place on the cross. And he says... Except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, that through which the world has been crucified to me 
an eye to the world. So what does Paul mean by that phrase? That the world has been crucified to him. When he's talking about the world, he is thinking about human society. You know, you have the cosmos world and you have the world, meaning the, the systems and ideologies of this fallen world. So when he's speaking of the world, he's speaking of human society that is aligned with the, the evil one. And who is the evil one? Satan. It reminds me of uh, 1 John 5 and 19 where John says, We know that we are from God, we being believers. But he says, And the whole world, the fallen world, lies in the power of the evil one. That's 1 John 5 and 19. So when Paul's talking about the world, he's talking about that world system. It's under the sway of who? Satan. The Bible says that Satan is the prince of this world, this world system. That's his domain. This world is under the domain of sin. This world is thoroughly anti-God in its thinking, its practices, and its religion. To that world, Paul and every true believer has been crucified. In other words, we no longer share the outlook, the philosophies, the practices, or the ideologies or the principles of the world. We don't love the things that the world loves. We don't take its idols for our gods. That's what it means to be crucified to the world. That's what Paul meant. And that's the way it is true for every believer. We don't take on the world's practices. We don't take on the world's thinking. We don't take on the world's philosophies. We don't take on the world's worldview. <coughs> Why? Because it's evil. And it takes us away from glorying in the cross. You have some people who glory more in their skin color than the cross. You have some people who glory more in what political party they belong to than in the cross. You have some people who glory in their wealth or their ability to, to make money or whatever the case may be. Uh, to, who glory in their material possessions rather than glorying in the cross you have people who glory in sin they brag about their sin they, they boast about it they post it on social media rather than glorying in what matters the most but for Christians it's different so Paul means that through the cross the world the world system, the world's temptations and values has lost its appeal. It's lost its charm. That's what he means when he says the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He once clung to the world. Every believer before uh, God saved us, we once clung to the things of this world. And Paul knows this for sure because he once clung to his self-righteousness as a Jew. Remember, before Paul was converted, he was on his way to Damascus Road to persecute Christians. 
He boasted in himself as a Jew. He, had, he says he has zeal, but not according to knowledge. He was very zealous for Judaism. So much that he, he said himself, I persecuted the church of God. Why? Because he had a zeal for this world. He clung to the world. But through union with Christ, who died for us, who died for him, and being in relationship with him entirely changes everything. That's why those who are trapped in the world system, their only way out is through Christ. The only way out is through salvation in Jesus Christ. Repent, turn away from your sins, and turn to Christ. And he will set you free from bondage to the world. Friends, that is the only way forward. There's no other way. You can't psychologize your way out of it. You can't medicate your way out of it. No, it's going to take heart change. It's going to take regeneration for that to happen. We still live in this world, but we are not of the world. 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father. That's 1 John 2, 15. We don't love the world, the world's ideologies. I'm going to give you a perfect example. I haven't seen the video, and I don't want to see it. The, the five Memphis police officers who, who uh, killed that young man. Okay? Very horrible. Very awful. But this is the problem when you think like the world. Okay? I'll just break this down for you, what I'm talking about, about worldly philosophies and worldly ideologies. Okay? There's always, we talked about this in our worldview study. There's always been a narrative that uh, white officers out there killing black suspects. That's, that's been a narrative for a long time. Okay, and we know that that white cops out here killing black men indiscriminately. It's only about maybe twelve or thirteen a year. But the point is, people make everything about race. So when you have five black officers that kill a young black man, it's not about race. But they say that law enforcement, police off the police, is itself white supremacy. And that these black men are doing the will of white supremacists. That's what they turn into. Why? Because when you worship your skin color, that's a worldly ideology. Oh, black people don't do stuff like that. We don't go out, black officers don't go out killing other black men. But when you buy into their ideology, you have to take everything that goes with it. You become a race idolater. And you begin to take that lie, that poisonous philosophy into your thinking. And then you begin to echo the same thing that everybody else is. That's a world of philosophy that's not true. Let me tell you something. Sin is individual. When God, when we stand before God, there's no institution that we belong to that's going to stand there with us at the judgment seat. The Bible says each man or woman will have to give an account before God. 
indiscriminate of whether you were a police officer or a judge or a banker or esthetician or a hairdresser or a counselor, whether you belong to the educational system, whether you belong to the banking system or the insurance system or whatever the case may be, none of that is going to matter on that day. It is what did you do? You're going to have to get account for your sins. But the world looks at it as a collective sin that, oh, we got to tear down law enforcement. We got to tear down police departments because policing is systemic racism. Policing is white supremacy. Those arguments that I see out there. And you have Christians who are echoing those same worldly philosophies. But what does Paul say? We're crucified to that. We don't think like the world thinks. We think biblically. What those men did was wrong and they deserve to be judged for. It don't matter what the skin color is. But we've been trained by our culture. Think about it. We're honest. We've been trained to look at who the skin color of the perpetrator was and who the skin color of the victim is. And depending on who it was, that determines the severity of the crime. You see how the world's thinking can twist our minds and have us thinking unbiblically about things like that. It doesn't matter what the skin color of the officer or the man was. That man is dead. It doesn't matter whether he was black or white. It doesn't matter. But when you think like the world, when you're not crucified to the world, you're going to think just like the world. And then you're going to become suspicious of your own brothers and sisters in Christ. You're going to become suspicious of strangers. That's how the world's thinking works. I had a pastor who told me he had to deal with a church member <coughs> who after all that George Floyd stuff happening, the church member, I had a pastor tell me, I'm like, this, this church member started harboring hatred in his heart toward fellow Christians with a lighter melanin count. I'll just say that. Because of something that happened in Minneapolis, Minnesota that was all over TV for a while during that summer of 2020. And this is a so-called believer. You're harboring hatred, which is a sin, which is murder against fellow believers over something that they didn't even do to you. But look, when you're not crucified to the world, that's why we have to guard our hearts, people. That's why we have to glory and boast in the cross. And when we boast in the cross, when we focus on what Christ has done, it kills all that nonsense. It kills it because that does not belong in God's house. That does not belong in our hearts. If you know people that are like that, you correct them. You check them. No, that's not. No. Mm -mm. Are we crucified to the world? And is the world crucified to us?
the systems, the ideologies, the philosophies, and the worldviews of the world are not in union with Christ. They are against Christ. And Paul is telling the Galatians here the same thing, these Judaizers, that he will glory in nothing except the cross of Christ. And that should be our cry as believers. Amen. Then he goes on in verse 15 and says, For neither circumcision or uncircumcision is anything but a new creation. Now, death isn't the goal of the cross. The goal of the cross is, is life. Jesus died on the cross so that we may have new life. Death wasn't the end. God's design for mankind goes beyond crucifixion. They moved toward resurrection because guess what? After the cross was the burial and after the burial was what the resurrection and after the resurrection was the ascension of Christ where he is sitting right now. And because of that resurrection, we have new life and we become a new creation if we believe in him. What Paul said in 2 Corinthians uh, 5 and 14, any man who is in Christ, I'm sorry, 5 and 17, any man who is in Christ is a new creation. A new creature, as the King James says. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So by sending his son into the world, God dealt a blow to the world. He blew open a hole so large that new creation could happen. That's why we glory in the cross. The cross clears the way for the new creation. In the story of Christianity, you know, crucifixion is, a, is followed by resurrection. Again, death to life. Good Friday followed by Easter Sunday. Jesus Christ was crucified. He died and he rose again. Paul talked about that in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, these things of first importance. That Christ died. He was buried. And he rose from the dead. And he was seen by many hundred witnesses. That is the gospel. He became the first and the last and the living one. As John the Revelator said in Revelation 1 and 7. He was the one who died and came to life. Revelation 2 and 8. Christ didn't just die. It didn't just stop at the cross. Now notice Paul says that both circumcision and uncircumcision are unimportant. He was speaking again about these Judaizers saying that they that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised. Paul saying that doesn't matter. That's not of most importance as I said in the opening here there's some things that are important but we make them ultimate things but Paul is saying circumcision or uncircumcision is, is not is, you know they're unimportant why because they do not reconcile us to God the most important thing is being a new creation are you born again have you received since you believed Through the message of the cross, sinners become new creatures. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus? Except the man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But what does God do? 
He transforms us by regeneration. Regenerate means to make alive what was dead. He makes our dead lives alive. And when we're regenerated, he unites us to the Lord Jesus Christ and we become new creations, new creatures. That's what it does. That's why we look to the cross. That's why we look to what Christ did. That's why we look to the to the resurrection. God transforms us. Now, in our day, we would say baptism and baptism is important. If you are a believer, if you have been baptized, hey, talk to me. We, we can we can schedule a baptism. Baptism is important, but baptism doesn't make us doesn't make us new creatures. It is necessary because God commands us to be baptized in one of the sacraments of the church, baptism and communion, because it marks our relation to Christ and his church. But baptism does not convert. You have some denominations that believe in baptismal regeneration. In other words, that you're saved through baptism, but scripture doesn't testify to that. Being baptized doesn't convert or regenerate. Just showing up at church doesn't magically, you know, we talk about all the time, people say, I need to go to church and get right with God. You don't get right with God by going to church. That's a work. You get right by God by going through Jesus Christ in salvation, repenting, turn away from your sins and turn to Christ. And Christ makes you right with God. You can't make yourself right with God, man or woman. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can wear. Oh, I need to, I need to go get some church clothes. It don't matter. Of course you want to look decent, but you know how people just make that excuse. Oh, I don't have no clothes for church. What do you mean? on clothes right now you can come to church they make every excuse I, I i need to get church clothes i mean what what good is wearing church clothes gonna do i mean you're already living life not pleasing to god you, you're, you're not in christ so you're not pleasing god right now so what makes you think he's gonna be more pleased with you because you wear some nice clothes at church he's not because that doesn't matter is are you a new creation in christ jesus are you born again have you been regenerated have you received since you believed in the lord jesus christ not doing some type of work. So Paul is saying, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but a new creation. That's why we glory in the cross. Then he says here in verse 16, we're still on the second principle here. The blessing of God falls upon all those who boast only in the cross. He says, and those who will walk by this rule, what rule? That we boast in the cross. That's what he's referring back to. And being crucified to the world. So he says, and those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So what Paul does here in verse 16, he, he pronounces peace and mercy. And in verse 18, he pronounces grace. Grace, peace, and mercy. And if you, you look at Paul's letters, most of them, that's how he began. Grace, peace, and mercy. He does this because th those are not just three words. Those are often united in scripture. And they summarize the fruit of the gospel in the lives of of God's people. The gospel reaps grace, the gospel re reaps peace, and the gospel reaps mercy 
in uh, the believers' lives, and I'll I'll show you how. So let's look at these three things. First of all, uh, let's look at peace. When we talk about the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ, Joseph Pippa says it is a reference to the wholeness, the joy, and the contentment that are ours in Christ Jesus. Now, we read in Galatians 5 that peace is a fruit of the Spirit. Now, there are different types of peace that Scripture refers to. One is objective peace with God. In other words, those of us who are believers, we, we have peace with God. The Bible says we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, God is at peace with you. God is not angry at the believer. Why? Because we are at peace with him through Jesus Christ. God reconciled us to himself. He laid down his weapons. We're justified. Remember that. Because we're justified, God has turned his wrath away from us. Get that. Because we are made right with God, he has turned his wrath away from us. Remember, his wrath was poured out on who? His son. We're no longer at enmity with God. That means we're, we're no longer hostile to God. We're no longer hostile. Also, we have a peace of conscience. That means that our conscience doesn't condemn us because we know that we're at peace with God. We're convicted that our conscience doesn't condemn us. Why? Because we know the Spirit testifies to us that we are children of God. Paul says that in Romans 8. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. That is a subjective peace that we have. We know that, man, I'm at peace with God. Now, that peace doesn't mean that we have license to go out and sin. No, that's not what it does. We're enabled to live at peace with God. And as believers, we live at peace with one another. Why? Because we know that we're at peace with God. We don't need to contend for our own rights. As believers, we can live together with a, a quiet and gentle spirit because we're at peace with God. We, we, we're not at war with each other as believers. Why? Because we're at peace with our Father whom we, we share. And then the next blessing is mercy. He says, uh, Joseph Pippa says, mercy is the pity of God joined with the appropriate acts as he addresses the miseries of our lives. Um, mercy is like loving kindness in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. So mercy is basically the covenant love of God. God told Moses that I will be merciful upon whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. As God is merciful to us, he is our father. And because he's our father, he loves us as his covenant children. 
He is a gentle father, just as a father has compassion on his children. Psalm 1, 103, 13, and 14, which was our assurance of forgiveness uh, the, the last few weeks. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. That's Psalm 103, 13, and 14. That's mercy. God knows we're dust. God knows we're weak. God knows we're frail. God knows we're helpless without him. He knows that, that we're, we're, we're without hope without him. So he's what? He's merciful to us because he knows that without him, we can do nothing. So what does he do? He pities us. And, 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 and pitying us is not like, oh, you little pitiful, poor thing. Not that type of pity. <laughs> like we tell people sometimes, bless your heart. <laughs> No, it's not like that bless your heart type of pity. Like, well, child, that's just your problem, you know. No, God is, shows pity to us by, by coming to our aid. By relieving us of the misery. That's how he's merciful. He patiently bears with us. He shows long suffering. Those are signs of God's mercy. Because, man, we know how we are. We can't even deal with ourselves sometimes. Sometimes I can't deal with my own thoughts. Are you like that sometimes? Well, you're like, man, I can't deal with my own thoughts. Just imagine the Father of Lights dealing with us. No, but he shows mercy to us. Man, God is so long-suffering. He, he's so patient with us. I mean, Lord, thank you. Just a moment of just gratitude. Lord, thank you for being so merciful to me. Because, again, we know how we are. We're hard to deal with. Sometimes I'm hard to deal with my wife. I know I am. But she loves me still. But God's long-suffering with me is infinitely greater than hers is towards me. God is merciful to us. And what does that mercy do? It, it, it softens and sustains us and delivers us from the miseries of this life. Look. People who are miserable in this life, they're miserable because the mercy of God is not on them. Rather, the wrath of God is on them. The anger of God toward them because they are not one of his. Why do people self-medicate? Because they're not experiencing the mercy of God. Why? Because they're not in God. So they, these are spiritual blessings, people, that belong to us. Now, through common grace, he does show mercy to unbelievers. But it's not the blessed mercy that believers have. It's not the same kind of mercy. God's mercy delivers us from the miseries and the consequences of our sins. And then the third benefit, of course, is grace. The grace of God, of course, is, is his unmerited favor toward us. And the thing about grace, grace has an object. It has an originator. It says here in this text, I'm looking at verse 18, the grace of. That means this grace belongs to someone. It's not just grace for grace sake. The grace of who? Lord Jesus Christ. Those names mean something. These are the three names of the Savior. 
He's, he's God's anointed prophet. He's God's anointed priest. And God's anointed king. Those are the three offices of Christ. Prophet, priest, and king. As priest, he mediates. As prophet, he proclaims. As king, he rules. And in Christ, we have everything we need to be saved, including grace. Why? Because he purchased all the benefits of God's grace for us, which include justification, which includes sanctification, which include adoption as sons and daughters. This grace gives us the power to die to sin. And to be renewed in the image of Jesus Christ. This grace assures us of God's love for us and toward us. It gives us boldness in prayer. It gives us confidence to approach the throne. It gives us joy in the Holy Spirit. This grace gives us the assurance that our sins are forgiven. That's why this grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is such a precious fruit. This grace leads us to believe in what Christ did for us on the cross. This grace gives us, as Paul said, the power to focus on nothing but the cross, to boast in the cross and nothing else. That's what this grace does. And God continuously distributes these three things to us. Grace, peace, and mercy. It is something that the believer can't lose. It's like I said before. The devil can't take that away from you. You can't go into the enemy's camp and take back your joy and take back your peace and take back your mercy. Why? Because it's not his. It didn't come from him. Satan can't take back from you what he didn't give to you. Once God bestows that upon us, guess what? It stays with us until he takes us home. We can never lose the peace that we have. We can never lose the grace that God bestows upon us. We can never forsake God's mercy as believers. And then he gives us benediction here. Again, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. Again, grace is the summary of all that Christ gives. So I end by saying this. What matters the most? Not circumcision, nor trying to obey the law, not trying to be justified by works. What matters most is boasting in the cross of Christ and the new creation we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the th thrust of the Christian life boasting in the Lord Jesus Christ amen four questions as we end here just something to think about in what practical ways do we truly make our boast in the cross how can we do that practically as we go through our lives as we wake up in the morning Lord help me to always keep in mind what you did for us what you did for me on the cross To turn to that 
to focus on it. When I was praying my wife this morning, I, I, I was praying that same thing. Look, all of us have things going on in our life. All of us do. It's not that those things don't matter. They do. They're happening, right? <laughs> but don't let that be your focus. Don't let those things take your mind off of Christ. It's like I was praying this morning. Don't make your problems bigger than God. Don't make your problems more magnified than magnifying what Christ did for you on the cross. And who you are in him because of you because of you believing in what he did. Don't let those things get bigger. Than Christ. Second. What do we. Do just to gain the praise of men. We do a lot of things to gain the praise of men to make good showing in the flesh. Some things we do is we acquiesce. We give in. We compromise. We become cowards. Just to be a man pleaser. We don't need the praises of men, people. That don't mean we go around being jerks. But we don't go around trying to please man. If we please man, we're going to be enemies of God. Because man hates God. Man doesn't want God. Fallen man doesn't want God. So we go around trying to be people pleasers and, and, and uh, you know, compromising on, on everything. We're, we're going to not please God. And ultimately, man's not going to be pleased with us because man always turns on each other. Because the secular worldview is an inconsistent worldview. They eat their own. What is there in the world system that still holds enough of an attraction for us to distract us from living for Christ? That's something to think about. What in the world system, the ideologies, the philosophies, the worldviews of the world is holding us captive, is distracting us from living for Christ? If you're a race or skin color idolater, that's a stumbling block. It is. It just is. That's just a fact. If you believe that men can get pregnant, <laughs> that's a stumbling block. That men should be in women's spaces. That men are better at women than women are. That's a problem. That's a stumbling block. There are many other things that the world puts before us that distract us and attract us from focusing on Christ. And you can end up going down the rabbit hole. Next thing you're like, how in the world did I end up here? Why? Because you were swept up into what you saw on television, what you saw on social media. And the next thing you know, you're like, man, it's like drifting away. You look back and you realize how far you are from the, from the boat. But like the song my old folks used to say, if your soul's not anchored in Jesus, you will surely drift away. Lastly, do we bear any brand marks of persecution for 
our identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we ashamed of the cross? Are we ashamed of the cross? Are we ashamed of identifying with Jesus Christ? Friends, more and more is going to happen. You all may not realize that the, the culture is trying to infiltrate the church. And some churches are just caving left and right. Not the living church. By God's grace, we're not doing it. We're not doing it. We can't be ashamed of the truth of Christ. We can't be ashamed of the testimony of Christ. We can't be ashamed of identifying with Christ. No matter what marks we're going to bear because of it, we cannot be ashamed. As uh, one of our sisters said in Bible study one time, is either Christ or chaos. There's no middle ground. There's no, as my old folks used to say, straddling the fence. Either you're on the side of Christ, either you're going to boast in the cross of Christ, either you're going to identify with Christ, or you're going to have chaos. And that's what we see in our culture. Trying to build a world while denying the God who created it. And that's why we have the chaos we have. Amen. Let us boast in Christ. Let us pray. Father, first, thank you for blessing us to make it through this book. I pray, Lord, that you have used this word and continue to use it in our hearts. Help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to not put our boasts in the works of the flesh, but boast in the work of Christ. Help us, Lord, to not boast in what we can do, but what you have done through your son, Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to not try to add to salvation, to add to what is required to be saved. Lord, help us to look to you. I pray, Lord, for any unbelievers who listen to this, that they know, Lord, that they have no hope in this world outside of you, that the misery that they feel is real, but it is a consequence of their rejection of you. And Lord, I pray that you use your word by your spirit to convict them of their sin. Bring them to a saving faith in you. Lord, give them saving faith this morning. And Lord, I pray for believers this morning who hear this message, that you encourage us, that you strengthen us, Lord, to continue to look to Christ, to bear the scars of the cross, to glory in the cross and be crucified to the world. Strengthen us, Lord. Strengthen what remains. And may we not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.